Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. And I'm Augusto Pinaud. I'm Francis Wade. And I'm Mark Gelwicks. Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to our listeners. This week, we are starting a new ongoing series on Productivity Cast that we're calling BookCast. And so, BookCast is where we're going to bring a new productivity book, well, a new to hopefully you productivity book, but it could be an old book as well, that we're reading, and we want to discuss the merits and demerits of the material. I'm hoping that we each come at the material from different backgrounds and experiences, and therefore some of us will love and some of us will uh, potentially not love the material, and that will make for an enlightening discussion for you. Um, For our first book cast, we bring you The Four Disciplines of Execution, Achieving Your Wildly Important Goals by Chris McChesney, Sean Covey, and Jim Hewling. I have been recommended this book so many times, and so I wanted to bring this book to Productivity Cast uh, to dive into the major tenets and discuss them. So a little bit about the book first. Uh, The book is described on Amazon. I'm pulling this from the Amazon description page. It says, do you remember the last major initiative you watched die in your organization? Did it go down with a loud crash? Or was it slowly and quietly suffocated by other competing priorities? By the time it finally disappeared, it's likely no one even noticed. What happened? Often, the answer is that the quote-unquote whirlwind of urgent activity required to keep things running day-to-day devoured all the time and energy you needed to invest in executing your strategy for tomorrow. And then it goes on to say that the four disciplines of execution can change that forever. It says the four disciplines of execution, or 4DX, is a simple, repeatable, and proven formula for executing your most important strategic priorities in the midst of the whirlwind. And that includes the four disciplines being focus on the wildly important, act on lead measures, keep a compelling scoreboard, create a cadence of accountability. And so with that, the authors are Chris McChesney, Sean Covey, and Jim Hewling. Uh, Sean Covey is uh, not only notably the son of the late Dr. Stephen uh, Covey, but he is also the senior vice president of innovations and products at Franklin Covey. And so he has been at the Franklin Covey company uh, for quite a while. And obviously he's the author of many other books and uh, and obviously helps with his father's uh company. Uh, Chris McChesney is the global practice leader of execution for Franklin Covey, and he's, of course, one of the primary developers of 40X. And then Jim Hewling is the managing consultant for Franklin Covey's 40X uh, delivery of that material across the world. So he's, he's responsible for the 40X methodology and the quality of the worldwide delivery. So those are the authors. That's a little bit about the book. And as I uh, noted in our lead up, the book is divided into four uh, parts. Uh, Well, the methodology is 40X is uh, broken up into four parts. 
And so I thought we would uh, kind of have our conversation in those four parts. Uh, the book itself is designed in, it was designed in three sections. They go into the four disciplines of execution, then they talk about installing 4DX with a team, and then installing it on the macro level and installing 4DX in your organization. Uh, but I think for our purposes, since we're going to talk about this kind of on the personal productivity level, uh, we could talk about this on the four disciplines uh, each individually. So where do we want to get started with the conversation? Let's start with focusing on the wildly important. Let's talk about what they mean by that and what wildly important goals are, and we'll go from there. I actually spent this past weekend working with a fertilizer company to develop their strategic plan. And one of the challenges my clients always grapple with is, how do you separate that which is essential from that which is nice to have? And most strategy documents that I've read done by other consultants with their clients look like mega long, long laundry lists. So they're like everything and the kitchen sink. And as you go through the kitchen sink after the fact, you have a really hard time figuring out just what the strategy is. You can see that they're doing 30, they want to do 30 things, but the 30 things don't actually fit together in any kind of coherent, they don't tell a story. They don't provide a rationale or a reason. They don't, they don't reveal what, what, what um, Kaplan and Norton call the strategic hypothesis, which is the idea behind the strategy. They just look like a lot of stuff to do. And it, to, 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 in keeping with what the authors say, if you can find the, and I'll go a step below, just saying what's wildly important. What's, what's the wildest, most important thing is what's the hypothesis and the sequence of core activities and how they fit together and how you describe them to other people. That blob of information which gets created, can get created during a retreat is the most important. And it's got to be separated at all times from everything else that's nice to have or everything else that's kind of emergent. Francis brings out a really good point of the separation of critical versus desirable. But I think in a lot of cases, especially when we start to look at it at the personal level, those critical items aren't coming from us. They're coming from outside factors. And that becomes a significant weighing on how do you make that decision? Is it really your call in those cases? And that's that sets the drive on what you need to focus on. Uh, a lot of the initial text focuses on development of the strategy and then the execution of the strategy. Well, from a personal productivity standpoint, I think a lot of us don't have control over that strategy part. Uh, that strategy is getting defined for us by ex external forces. Uh, if you have you know, not only just work things, but you have, say, kids that have to go to college, you have bills to pay, things like that become those wildly important goals because if you don't do them, nothing else really happens. So I think quantifying it around that, around what's, what's the critical, what's the desirable, and then honestly not excluding all the desirable things. Uh, when I work with clients in the corporate space, we'll go through and define a list of requirements on a project and I go through the same exercise. What do you need to have? What do you want to have? 
I always try to include a couple of the once into the overall need listing because it makes, it makes the overall execution more effective. Those are the things you can say, look, it's just going off the rails. We just need to pull a couple things out. You can pull the once out and not affect the needs and still have everything meet the requirements. So I think the focus on the wildly important is critical, but I also want to make sure that people don't put blinders on the fact that it must be only those things. You still have to keep a holistic look. And and on those heels, I think the author's premise is that the world around us, the what they call the whirlwind, is kind of our daily lives, our daily activities, our our day jobs that are in essence kind of Force, external forces or pressures on us to distract us from these things they called wildly important goals. And I'm really curious about how they design the wildly important goals. And from, from my perspective, how do you make the list, right? And so uh, in, in pursuit of an important goal, you have to narrow down that which is not important, that which is important, but not important enough to be this wildly important. They kind of stage it up a level to this highly important, they, they're adding a modifier to important to make it more. And that that was the part that I couldn't quite grok as well, is the defining piece between if it's important, it's important. If it's wildly important, it kind of sets itself above other things. And if you think of, say, Greg McCowan's essentialism or even the bullet journal method uh, by Ryder Carroll, there is, there is, it's vital and it's to be done or it is not to be done. And I can see the difference between gradations. I'm not, I'm not that black and white of a thinker, but the wildly important goal didn't necessarily speak to me as being more important than anything else. But I imagine that if you're in an in an environment, and as a as a team as a leader, and this book is really designed for leaders. So if you're a leader, you know what the standard or metric is that you're trying to set for every quarter, half year, annually, or otherwise. And so the wildly important goal, I'm presuming, should be the project that's going to help you hit those metrics or go beyond those metrics in some way, shape, or form. I don't know. I just I, I don't feel as though the, the wildly important goal necessarily spoke to me as much in terms of, of that. The, the methodology as a whole, which is choose a goal and work toward execution on that goal, that speaks to me. But the you know, that whole like BHAG and wildly important goal. It just sounds like acronym soup. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree with you there, Ray. That was, and this is a general thing about the book. As I started going through it, I'm like, I need my management bingo card here because it's, it, I hate to say it, but I've heard all this stuff before. And anybody who's done anything in the productivity space has heard all of these approaches before and these ideas. I, I literally did not find anything new going through this. 
to me, it was a rehash of same concepts, same strategies, and things that that did not necessarily translate outside a very narrow segment of need and desire. You mentioned BHAG, and anybody who hasn't heard of that one before is Big Hairy Goal, um, or Hairy um, Goal. Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, Audacious works. That's that's the word I was looking for. Um, but it it really comes down to that is typically being defined by the higher upper echelons of an organization as something to shoot for. Well, let's translate that to everyday life. I mean, how many of those goals, quote goals, do we create? When we start talking about wildly important, it immediately gets confused with tasks and actions and things that have to be accomplished. Well, those aren't goals. My, my wildly important goal may be to get a law degree from Harvard. Okay. That, that to me sounds like wildly important. It sounds like a wild goal, but why is it so important? What's the definition? And I think that's where I'm, I struggle, at least in this first segment is the terminology does not necessarily match what they're trying to define, at least in my, in my take on it. That's right. a little defense on their behalf, perhaps, is that you know they're 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 trying to write a semi self help book, and it, to do that you need to make things super super simple, and you know the, their super super simplification doesn't really match to real life either at the personal level or the corporate level. The longer the objective or the further away the objective you define, and you know I, I work with companies to produce 30-year 30 30 strategies. And when you're looking at a 30-year strategy, that's a long series of interconnected activities that you need to keep your eye on. And it's it may start with something as simple as hire the right person for a job um, in the next six months in order to execute something that's not going to bear fruit for 10 years. But it's not wildly important in the sense that if you don't hire that person, then the whole place goes to heck. But it is wildly important in the context of causing a digital transformation, for example. So they're trying to simplify something that's really complex. And they have they don't really talk about really long-term goals and how to how to follow the chain of activity that produces a real long-term effect. I'm trying to force myself to stay in the lane a personal productivity. Because you're right, it's it's very easy to take this in the corporate space and apply it corporately. Because one, that's how it's written. But two, it translates to the, the common sense approaches within the corporate space. But if I try and stay in the personal productivity lane, let's say, for example, my wildly important goal is financial independence. That's about as broad as I can make it for an extremely long term. And yes, it is wildly important. It would free up all kinds of things. It gives all kinds of opportunities. So I'm going to use that as my benchmark. If I'm going to define that and then look at this first section, this first um, dimension of this and the focus on that means, or the question I have is, does that mean that I need to focus on that at the expense of things that don't drive that wildly important goal? Because that was one of the, the other things that I read out of the text is, 
you got to knock the rest of this stuff out of the way. You got to focus on this one thing. You know, this, this must be the core driver. And I'm like, that's not totally realistic. You can't always do that, at least not on the personal side. Professionally, you can certainly say, look, nothing else is important. But personally, I don't think you have that option. And so to provide a little bit of of further clarity here, what they talk about in terms of the wildly important goal is to phrase it as X to Y. So going from A to B, I don't know why they went X to Y. They could just go A to B uh, (laughs) or A to Z, uh, but A to to Z uh, by when. So the formula is from location A to location B by when. So starting point to outcome and a time associated with it. So that makes a lot of sense. I think that you know the 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 goal is to be able to smart goal it, so to speak, or smarter goal it, adding evaluate and then reevaluate to the to the smart goal perspective. I like that part of it. In an organization, this can be very difficult depending upon the dynamics of the organization. If you are the leader of a small team and you have the respect of that team, you have the authority to be able to exact and exert. Uh, control over that team, uh, if you have the ability to persuade that team, if you have the ability to empower that team, then yes, this is potentially useful to you. If the organization, even on the team level, is dysfunctional in any capacity, then it's very difficult to make 40x work because the strategy is, is sound, potentially, but the execution is not going to work in that particular environment. And that's the part that I'm, I, we were talking before we started recording about doing this in a family environment and the potential woes of how that could, that could go off the rails. And I, I think about that because families are, are, are dynamic creatures and they are organized around usually, you know, if you have children raising those children and they're in different states of development. And I think about that in terms of so many organizations that I come into contact with on a weekly basis, where they're, they're startup businesses, they're going concerns, they're businesses that are in, in the you know autopilot mode, potentially, they're businesses that are, are in traction and are responding to uh, outside forces that are, that are you know, potentially hurting the company uh, dramatically. And so they're, they're, they're these organic creatures that are dealing with all of these pieces. And so they're not necessarily equipped to deal with the execution in such a, I don't know, very um, confined, restrictive way. I'm, I'm just curious about how that all works in a, in a real life environment. And obviously they wrote this book, you know, like it's, it's good to like put this out there because in the, in the outline of who these authors are, they wrote this book to sell their consulting services to large companies that can pay them to help them execute this, uh, you know, execute on this material. So let's not forget that they wrote it with that intent in mind. And I'm sure it also helps all of us who read the book who want to implement this ourselves. But their primary goal, of course, is to bring uh, notoriety to the methodology and then to teach it out there in the world. So we have to kind of put it through that lens as well. And to your point earlier, Francis, I know you talked about them kind of writing it very simply because they want to make it generally available. I I actually also look at it from the opposite side, which is that you could write something like getting things done, which is a highly complex methodology 
and put that out into the world. Uh, and so you have kind of two ways of positioning that in in that in the space. If you're trying to sell coaching or consulting services, you can, in essence, do everything in the kitchen sink, which overwhelms people and makes them want to hire you for you know services to be able to help implement it. Or you can do what they've done here, which is try to put kind of this highly simplified version out there, knowing that there are probably some missing pieces, and then you seek them out for filling in the gaps, for being able to get the details of how to actually make this thing happen. I agree with your analysis there. Um, but to apply it to the personal realm, even even a simple, a simple objective, it would seem simple anyway, of that I've had for for the last couple of decades, which is to be fluent in Spanish. So I had the opportunity to interact with a, a few bilingual folks inside of a company recently. And once again, I was painfully aware that I'm not fluent. And it took, takes me all the way back to high school, where Spanish was my weakest subject. And it was the one that I didn't study and the one that I didn't continue. I didn't do any Spanish at all in college. And it wasn't until I was, maybe this is about 20 years later, that I had a project in Venezuela, in Caracas, Augusto, right before, right before Chavez came in. I worked on a couple of projects there. And I realized, oh my God, I, I know enough Spanish. I really love to learn it. And I tried to spend two weeks to be immersed and I learned, got a lot better. And then they had a change of regime and I never went back to Venezuela. And planned to do it again, not to do another immersion program about another decade later. And then the recession came just, just at the right time to knock that out of the park. And I haven't picked up the Spanish since. So learning Spanish for me is a personal development project. If I had learned it fluently, I, it would have transformed my business. Was it a wildly important goal? I don't know. You know, in the context of my career, looking back, if I were able to pick it up earlier, it would have been a wildly transformative um, capability. But I never did. So... I think their simplification also makes it difficult to translate something as complex as learning Spanish over a period of decades into a simple wig, a simple, wildly important goal. Because at any particular point in time, it was never wildly important. But over the period of 30 years, I can now say it would have been important if I had had an opportunity to become fluent. So the simplification, I think, does drop out a lot of complexity and makes it difficult to apply. You're going to make me talk about something that I, I try to avoid, but this actually gives a very specific analogy in my mind to how Professor Cal Newport talks about deep work and how that term itself is very charged. Because if deep work is the work that is supposedly important and shallow work is the work that is trivial and mundane that's not important, you get this perception that one has value and the other doesn't. And a wildly important goal, a wig, uh, supposedly is going to bring you the greatest amount of impact, except that something like Spanish, which is the mundane hard work, what uh, going back to Dr. Stephen Covey, you know, he would say, if you had the discipline to practice and learn piano, you have the freedom to play the piano. And it's like, it's that notion, which is that I could make a very shallow action, you know, shallow work. Call Susan, takes two minutes. Guess what? I now have a million dollar contract. Was that not worth doing? 
was that not important to do versus the deep work which could have been you know writing a chapter in a book or something like that so we have to always balance out the fact that sometimes the semantics of these things they sound good in corporate speak but in practical kind of ways we should think about our own personal productivity the value of something has to be the outcome that we can define it doesn't necessarily always stand on its face that that thing is going to lead to what we want it to lead to it, it, it's just hard to decipher what wildly important means in practical day-to-day -day activity and you can make the wrong choice and make you know really screw things up just because you're trying to label something in but in a particular way and then ignore everything else life just doesn't present itself that way and i i think we can make this more usable by dropping what seems to be the operative part of this or operative problem in this which is this phrase wildly important if we look at the personal perspective if you have a goal that is very important to you maybe it's not wildly important fine it's not the the terminology that's really the key it's the fact that they're drawing out a very base level common sense approach to dealing with goals which is don't let side activities get in the way of the primary goal make sure you're focused on it i used the comment out of gaming that side quests don't advance the main adventure uh, you can spend days and days running little side quests in a computer game and never actually advance the main story well Whatever your goal is, that's your main story. And you have to focus on what are the things to be able to do that. And I think this steps us into parts of the second and the third and the fourth that we can leverage and use to help ourselves do that. But again, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that any of this is new. This is just kind of a restatement of it with enough marketing speak wrapped around it to sell some consulting time, like you said. Yeah, so this does take us to their next kind of perspective on what they call lead and lag measures. And so what they're talking about here is the notion that we should be really focusing on lead measures as opposed to lag measures. And so lag measures are measures that are easily understood after the fact. And so we know that say in the business world if we look at revenues revenues are something that is very easily defined and comes at the end of all of the work after strategy after execution then you get a result that's a lag measure the lead measure of course are all of the pieces that happen before that that help you to be able to correct course uh, to be able to modify for the intended goal in leading up toward that outcome which is, you know, maybe there is some there are some marketing metrics, there are some sales metrics, what what's happening along the funnel toward the sales and revenue, so that you can clean those things up and they become indicators of whether or not you're on track or off track and can better navigate you toward the the wildly important goal. I struggle a little bit with the concept of lead and lag specifically because I come from a project management background for a lot of my work and lead and lag is often conferred around time for execution. But if I look at it purely around measures, 
most commonly the measures you'll get are just that. They're lag measures. They're reactive measures. Uh, you did X number of things to get to this end result. Uh, I'll use a great example for this. Habit trackers. Habit trackers are a lag measure because you're only tracking when you either did them or did not do them. They're not things that are helping to move the ball forward or at least clear the way for, for that to happen. So I was trying to come up with an analogy. And if I think about a goal of, say, writing a book, a lag measure could cross-identify as, did I write a thousand pages or did I write 500 words today. Great. That's a lag measure. And I can see that. But no way does that indicate how I'm supposed to make sure that I write 500 words tomorrow. A lead measure translated into that would be, allocate. did I allocate an hour of time to write 500 words? That's enabling the lag measure to actually occur and happen. And I think a lot of the times people are used to dealing with lag measures because that's how they're measured in the real world. And unfortunately it's a, it's an unfortunate thing that that's how people are measured because it's always reactive. Oh, you didn't meet this objective, but there's nothing, no conversation around, well, how do you meet this objective? And can we measure that we're actually setting you up for success? But this idea of lead measures is good but it's alien, I think, to many, many people. In defining wildly important goals, I recognize something for myself as I was reading the book most recently and thinking about it. I thought, what is the difference between a wildly important goal and a lag measure? Oh, there's a big difference there because a wildly important goal should never move. It should be constant and it's not reactive. So if I say, if I say like, you know, writing a book, um, that's a singular event. You accomplish the goal. You have a point in time where you, you can turn back and say, I've achieved it. At least this is my estimation of it. Lag measures are a constant movement. You're looking to see, you know, if I use an example of traveling somewhere, I'm going to drive to Colorado. Great. The goal is to arrive in Colorado. The lag measures are the mile markers as they've gone past. And I can see, oh, okay, I've gone 200 miles. I've gone 250 miles and I need to go X number of miles to get to Colorado by this time. So that's, that's an achievement that I have on progress to the goal. The lead measure would be, am I going to stop in time to get gas so that I don't get sidelined? Am I, have I made arrangements to... And these are more tasks than they are measures. And this is where I'm struggling with this a little bit. But have I put the right things in place to make that goal achievable? Rather than saying, did I do those things after the fact? And this, you can see where it's confusing for people. Of course, yeah. That's why I bring up the question, you know, and, and acting faux confused about it because... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not acting. I am totally confused. <laughs> no, no. I, I guess I was acting a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> poorly acting. I'm, I'm not an actor. But the, 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 the goal here, though, is to understand the difference between those. And I, and I think it's, it's actually very difficult because you can say something like, "I want to make X dollars by December 31st." That could be a considered a wildly important goal, except that it's, it's really not because it's not a transformation. The, the goal, of course, needs to be some kind of, I, I think of it, 
interpreting their material and then putting that through the lens of a personal productivity, you know, putting that through the lens of personal productivity, you need to then think, think of any goal as a transformation. And if you're the hero or the heroine in and along that journey, then what is that, what is that transformation that needs to happen? And that becomes not just a, a, an important goal, it becomes actually one that covers a long span of time. And so I don't, I don't think of this as being, oh, we're just going to do this in a year. And, and that's a wildly important goal. Like with Francis's notion of learning Spanish, that is a, for no offense, Francis, but for a man of your age, uh, and, uh, you know, that is not a part of your brain that is undeveloped. It is a fully developed part of your brain that is going to be very difficult to learn at your age. And so, you know, a, a three-year-old is not going to have a problem learning Spanish in under a year. A, uh, you know, any one of us now with fully developed brains is going to have a more difficult time. We are challenged already by that reality of our biology. So the goal then is to think what over the next four or five years can we do to really get to some level of fluency. And what I think of is, okay, well, what is the international standards for fluency? And then working up through those grades each year, hitting one of those till you're at level five and say, that is fluency. And then breaking those down into lead and lag measures so that you're able to get yourself to that point. And, and this is really where I think about all of the fundamental importance of chunking and breaking down into the elemental projects of any particular goal. And I, I think that when, once we get along to kind of our third and, and fourth principles here, they make a little bit more sense. But that's, that's really where my mind goes. In terms of lead measures, there's a little bit of art involved in developing lead measures because you're trying to predict what will, what is a way, an indicator of progress that will ultimately lead to your goal. So I actually had a, an experience using both in the last couple of years. I lost about 12 pounds of weight and my lag measures were weight, um, body fat and the, my, uh, waist size measured in inches or millimeters, you know, just, just with a little, um, measuring tape around the waist. And so those were my lag measures. My lead measures, the, the first ones I used were calorie counts. So by managing and observing and watching my, my calorie intake, I used one of these small apps. And that's always worked for me, so it worked again. But by making sure that there was a deficit each day or on most days, and by keeping my exercise program to around six days a week, thereabouts, which is kind of what I've always done. But then I upped the ante and increased the intensity of my exercise so that the calorie deficit would be different. So the measurement of the calorie deficit is my lead measure. It's the predictor of what I hope would be captured at some point by my lag measures. The, so that's an easy example, but for more difficult examples, like learning Spanish, for example, a lead measure could be the number of hours I spend um, listening to Spanish, learning Spanish, practicing, um, immersing myself with a Spanish speaker. I could measure all these different ways. Now, the, the, the reason I say this is an art is because 
those aren't perfect predictors of my fluency. They're pretty good. I think they would work. Some probably would work better than others. Some might work for me and not for other people. But there's a bit of an art in there because the, the, the relationship between cause and effect isn't perfect. However, it's still really powerful to look for a lead measure because at least you're in the game of measuring your input, so to speak. At least you're in the game of crafting an understanding of what you need to do, of the effort required. And that game is very, they're, they're, the authors are right, that game is very powerful. And you rightly said, Ray, that most people don't think in those terms, which leads them to a lot of frustration, for example, when it comes to weight loss or learning Spanish, because neither of those are short-term goals. And you may, as old as, and the older you get, the worse it gets in this exa- these two examples. You may exercise and study and not see the needle move for a while, because if all you're looking at is lag measures, you won't see any progress at first. So having these lead measures is a way to motivate yourself if you know how to craft them. So that takes us to our third principle in the four disciplines of execution, which is to create a compelling scoreboard. And what does that mean, according to McChesney, Covey, and Hewling? Well, I'll, I'll tackle that because actually that's one of the things I do all the time is build dashboards for people. Uh, that type, the compelling scoreboard is one of those things that can make or break this type of an implementation. Because often what happens is scoreboards are built around the wrong things. They're built around the obvious things. Uh, they're built around lag measurements almost all the time. And when you cross that line and you're looking at old data, uh, you're looking at information that maybe it's even o- only a day or two old, you've lost that time to adjust accordingly and to make adjustments to stay on course for your goal. So one of the things when I go through and I build dashboards is I make sure that the information that you're getting is allowing you to be re- to be active for the next sequence of, of changes that you need to make. And it has to be not only relevant, but it has to be timely. And what I think is probably the most important piece, the information that you're going to have with your scoreboard has to be simple. I've seen so many times where people will put together these massive convoluted scoreboards and dashboards, and I want to look at it this way and that way and that way and that way. And I'm like, that's all great. Give me two things that are going to help you stay on course. If you can do that, then the rest of it's all nice. But those two measures should be the ways that you're going to turn left and turn right on the steering wheel to make sure that you stay driving down the center of the road. And their, their idea of keeping a compelling scoreboard is very, very important to this. It's something that we often will forget. And I'll go back to my habit tracker example. That's a really good example of having a compelling scoreboard because you can look at it right away and know, are you slacking off or are you not slack? It's a critical part of this. Unfortunately, it's often badly built and it's not giving you the opportunity to make the changes that you need when you need to make them. I agree. Um, I, I, on a personal level, I've been building scoreboards for as long as I can remember, but I've also been frustrated for as long as I can remember because I could never create the scoreboard I really want or need. 
the, the, the numbers are always either scattered all over the place or I have to enter them manually, which becomes a chore, which, which eventually becomes a, an annoyance and sometimes leads to me stopping. Uh, or it's, it's not in a place that's visible. It's, it's buried inside some app or um, some, some place I'm collecting the numbers. So I've, I've experienced a constant frustration around scoreboards, personal scoreboards that I've never, rarely do I ever have the one that I want. I'm always making do, and that's been forever. I'm, I'm, I've been dying for someone to come up with a way to put together personal scoreboards that is easy and accessible and attractive, just practical, actually. I, I guess I would settle for that at this point. I mean, if you look at tools like, for example, Todoist, Todoist has a scoreboard a basic scoreboard capability built into it. And they use a thing called karma points to figure out, are you staying on track? But all of that, or should I say, none of that goes to actually solving the problems of why you're not staying on track. It's just telling you, oh, you're off track. So it's not much more important than, say, the speedometer on your car. It's going to tell you you're going too fast. It's not telling you why you're going too fast. Is it because you have a lead foot? It is because you have a car problem. Those are the types of things that when we think about our dashboards and around personal goals, we have to include that as part of our strategic plan. And strategic plans so often get defined strategy and then we figure out how to execute. Well, to me, that's the mistake. A strategic plan needs to include the strategy of execution. What are the measures you're going to need to be able to meet this strategy? If it's, let's say, for example, the, the goal is to improve your customer relationship or your, your number of tickets coming in by 20%, you know, reduce that rate. Fine. If you haven't defined what those measures are, how you're going to measure them and how you're going to react when you're not meeting them, then you haven't created a strategy. You've created a wing and a prayer that you're hoping somebody else is going to execute on. So these types of dashboards that we're talking about, these can be the linchpin to this entire thing. And so often I think they get just kind of like, oh, we need a dashboard. And then that's what you get. There is a couple of things with the dashboards that you that I agree with what you're saying. The problem is from which perspective you are, you are getting this. You are getting this perspective from the high person in the organization that may or may not have a real connection, a real impact. He just can look at the numbers and say, oh, okay, our tickets are going up. Or you are looking at this dashboard from the person who is actually tackling these tickets. Uh, And the problem is we tend to look at these dashboards as a unilateral thing. Okay, upper management is looking at the dashboard and and barking down how, how we are getting more tickets, but they are not necessarily looking or listening to what is the reason these tickets are on increase or in decrease. And these people who are actually on the front line may or may not get, in most cases don't get, a saying on the measurement, a saying of why these things are happening or not happening that make that dashboard completely useless in, in a way because, yes, it allows you to know that there is an issue but it doesn't allow you to see 
in many cases, the real cause of that issue. So you are treating and working to treat an effect, a problem, but you are not, in many cases, treating the real cause of those. One of the things that I think about when you look at the idea of a scoreboard or a scorecard and keeping score are a number of different things. One is that that can be rejected by certain individuals in an organization and on a team in a personal productivity system that can be anti-authoritarian um, uh, sentiment can kick in yourself, right? So I, I can I can certainly understand times when I have felt like I've created too much structure and then therefore I reject the structure. And we have to be cognizant of that fact that you can have this rejection of keeping score because there's too much scoring that's too complex to keep track of it. And so therefore you reject it from the the overwhelming amount of work it is just to keep track. And then the other side is, of course, that anti-authoritarianism that I talked about. You know, you can feel like, oh gosh, this is just too much bearing down on me and it's too much information or it's just, it feels like too much structure and so then it's rejected out of pocket. So that's one thing that I think everybody should just pay attention to. The The other part that comes to mind is that in uh, a, a group environment, the person who is leading usually has to collect and understand more data than the players that are looking at the scoreboard. So the players need to know very simple pieces of information. Am I winning or am I not winning and by how much? The, the person who's leading though needs to take account of a heck of a lot more data you know, if you if you take this to any sport, right, you know, you have, say, baseball, you know, how many, you know, bases are, are loaded, you know, how many, you know, how many people are on base, how many people have, have, you know, outs, how many people have runs, and you start calculating all of the batting average and so on and so forth, all that's happening by somebody who's not on the field. And, but the people on the field, all they're worried about are the, are the scores up on the board, and playing the game, the components of okay, can I can I steal a base? Uh, you know, is this is the player up up at bat going to uh, you know bunt, or are they going to you know take this one out of the park? We're we're, we're playing the game, or we're um, paying attention. I, I forget what it's. Um, the, there's kind of a term for that when you're like you know you're paying attention to the details around the game. You know that color commentators do about a sport and. There's kind of like there's that business of of the sport, and then there's the playing of the sport, and there's a difference between those. And when you're thinking about doing this in your own personal productivity system, because that's the flavor of the way in which we're looking at this today, I think that becomes difficult because you have to kind of wear two hats. Oh, I definitely agree. I mean, you you need to have systems that give you a proper perspective on the data. I mean. This here's a pet peeve that I have is I will sit down into a requirement session talking about a dashboard and I will start with, I always start with the same question. So what would you like to report? And as soon as I get this answer back, my teeth start to hurt. And the answer is, well, what can you tell me? Yeah, you haven't defined anything then. And that's the first mistake. There are lots of ways to report data. But if you don't know what you want to pull out and its inherent value, 
all you're doing is reporting for the sake of reporting. And honestly, I think that's what a lot of people have a problem with when they look at things like dashboards, especially if they're on the execution side of a strategy, is are we gathering this data just because we can? We, what are you going to do with it? How's this going to make things better? And reporting at those multiple levels, I think you're absolutely right that you have to be able to say that, yeah, I can report, I can generate 20 different reports off of this data, but these two, these are the ones that are going to help us drive the goal. The rest are just nice to know and and can help us identify ways to be more productive and more efficient and things like that. But what are the key ones? And communicate that. If From a strategy standpoint, if leadership is not communicating why data is being captured and what it is going to be used for, and then follow up on that, they're not doing themselves any favors. And I think you just hit on the proverbial head of that nail with many of these dashboards, is that the dashboards don't seem as a way to improve from from the people who is doing the execution, but as a way to get them in trouble with measurements that are impossible. I have heard that more into organizations about the dashboards, that about how the, that information that is getting to the upper levels is going to help to improve fill in the blanks. So if your communication of why you're tracking this on both, on this is the key information that we are going to use for this, and this is the information that we are trying to get so we can make improvements, but also communicate as this is happening, as you get the information, as you draw the conclusions. When that doesn't happen, what the people start feeling is, okay, you're tracking the information just to track the information or just to see how we can work more instead of how we can work better. Or, and I'll add the third criteria, you are only tracking this information to determine how well I can execute your strategy. And that you want to talk about that pushback. That's where I think a lot of people start to run into it as they say, look, you know, all all you're doing is trying to figure out, you're trying to come up with another stick instead of a carrot for me. And that's why I think a lot of people on the execution side, look at these types of dashboards. And when we start to think about it for ourselves, we're like, we don't enjoy that part of our actual work. So why the heck would I create something that's going to act as a stick on myself for me? I mean, why would I do that to myself? And we lose the perspective in the context of if a dashboard is is constructed correctly, it is a roadmap. It is the GPS saying recalculating rather than the GPS going, you turn the wrong way. It's a whole different context and it's a whole different psychology. The notion that you talk about is actually really, really important and is and needs to be considered very thoughtfully. Um, I, I want us to uh, though go, on, go along and continue on in the fourth discipline while we have time. Um, and so the fourth discipline of execution then is to schedule uh, regular uh, weekly, they talk about touch points where everybody is then held accountable for progress toward the lead measures. And this is, again, the, the kind of what they call a cadence of accountability that is a regular schedule where everyone is in a very uh, limited time capable of just accounting 
for what they've accomplished toward the lead measures. In a corporate setting, this you know, it makes complete sense because corporations run on accountability and accountable relationships. On a personal level, it's usually, unless you have a coach, if you're fortunate enough to have that, or a spouse, usually it's just you and you. In other words, you're the one holding yourself to account. And that's not easy for most people. The dashboard helps to create a little bit of separation between you, the one who is doing what you're trying to do, and you're the one, you, part of you that's trying to hold yourself accountable. But it's still, it's still a real challenge. And most people may start off in a bang and then sort of peter out as it gets old. The, the, the holding a stick to your own self you know, it just doesn't really work that long. It's a character a lot better, but a mature, accountable relationship is the best of all. Writing out on the coattail of the dashboard, this is really important when that accountability goes both ways. You know, again, when you make this accountability field like another stick, this fall apart really, really fast. And, and that is a problem. The accountability works, no question about it, when it works both ways, when it works from the top and when it works from the bottom, and we're both being accountable about the data collected and what actions we're taking and how everybody's trying to improve. That is a challenge. When that accountability feels that it's only one way and usually is from the bottom to the top, okay, the bottom is accountable and the top is just looking at the data and barking down, then the problem is that gets broke. You can't execute that way because people simply stop trying to push. And instead of getting an effective result, what you get is more pushback out of that. So and that is part of the challenge. How can you make this accountability really go both ways. How can you make this accountability? How can you make those measurements so you can show that you are being accountable as the leader of the of the thing? How so you don't make another stick so people really help you to move that initiative forward? So as we come on the close of our time together, I think it's important for us to take heed to the fact that not every goal is a wildly important goal. But almost every goal can have a process associated with it. It can have a, a an understanding of focus. It can have an understanding of clarity of what needs to be done. It can have a, a sense of engagement. And it can have accountability. For those very reasons, I think that you can manifest a system like 40X that really helps you reach more goals more consistently. Agree or disagree? I agree. I, I completely agree. And I, again, I have seen them when you've figured out those goals, but it required to, at least for that important goal and for that measurement, that the organization gets flat, that the organization, at least for those purposes, can really provide a flat environment where everybody is has the same level of accountability in their little square. When that is accomplished and when the leaders can come and be as accomplished as the last person on that 
chain of command, then that is possible. People are seeing now this as part of the social fabric of the of the enterprise. And now people is really open to to participate and to be part of this and to really bring the best forward. Now they see this as a group trust. Now they, they are able to really bring as a whole. When that's not possible, sadly, that basically throw everything in pieces and apart. Yeah, and I think that in a, in a work environment where you're working in a team, it's very difficult to do that without an understanding that mistakes need to be made in order for people to learn. And when you don't have a culture where mistakes are relished, where mistakes are understood and then um, corrected in a way that doesn't make people feel wrong and bad, then you're going to have trouble with this kind of scorecard leaderboard uh, environment. On a personal productivity perspective, I think that this does require most likely some form of accountability partnership, some kind of way that you can uh, create accountability with others. Now, you know, there are folks who can keep themselves accountable that have that level of self-accountability. But if you have any struggle with self-accountability, then you're going to need some kind of one-to-one group or a larger level of, of accountability to be able to make this kind of thing really stick for you, because then you're just tracking numbers for the sake of it. You, you need some level of being able to have someone else look at those numbers, and many times the brain trust associated with that could be helpful. So... I just I, I think that accountability is really uh, one of the core features here that can be very empowering for you if there's not judgment, if there's just analysis and looking at ways to be able to improve upon the system and the lead measures and therefore really get at what Art was talking about, which is why? Why is this happening? And can we optimize the on the process? Can we optimize on the procedures that are leading toward what's going on. And if there are problems, why is that happening? So we can uncover the true problem to then come up with a true solution. So I I think that that's all um, good stuff there. All right. Um, We have reached the end of our first bookcast for the four disciplines of execution, Achieving Your Wildly Important Goals by Chris McChesney, Sean Covey, and Jim Hewling. While we are at the end of our discussion about the book, the conversation doesn't stop there. If you have a question or a comment about what we've been discussing about this book and during this cast, please visit our episode page on productivitycast.net. There on the podcast website at the bottom of the page, feel free to leave a comment or a question. Uh, we, re- we read and respond to all of them uh, if you want a response. If you've enjoyed spending time listening and learning with us today, it'd be great if you can help us by adding a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you have if it lets you leave a rating or review. Um, your compliments motivate us to keep going, and they help us grow our personal productivity listening community by signaling to the podcast algorithms that we're putting out quality episodes. So thank you for uh, those who have already left reviews. Uh, We really appreciate that and uh, keep them coming. If you have a topic about personal productivity you'd like us to discuss on a future cast, please visit productivitycast.net forward slash contact. You can leave a voice recorded message or you can type us a message and maybe we'll feature it on a future episode. 
I want to express my thanks to Augusta Pinaud, Francis Wade, and Art Gelwicks for joining me here on Productivity Cast this week and every week. Uh, you can learn more about them by visiting the productivitycast.net page about us. I'm Reese Sidney Smith, and on behalf of all of us here at Productivity Cast, here's to your productive life. That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks.